This episode of Tales from the Backlog is brought to you by the fine folks who have chosen to go to patreon.com slash real Dave Jackson and kick me a few bucks to help support the show. Those personal heroes of mine are Chris Nelson, the top three podcast crew, Zolgeek, Eric Guess, Rick Firestone, Nick Ficori, Jill, Soccer, ZNA, Cupcake, Kyle, Christian S., Matt, aka Stormageddon, JD, Doug Leaf, Jason Emery, Rob Shack, and many more. On patreon.com slash real Dave Jackson, in exchange for your generous support, you will get lots of treats like the ability to vote on polls for games to appear on the show, bonus episodes, and much more. I do want to shout out also that since this is the first episode of the month, that there is a new series on the Patreon called Tales from the Way Backlog, and that is covering retro games 30 years or older. July's game is Zelda 2 Adventure of Link. So if that sounds interesting to you, once again, that's patreon.com slash real Dave Jackson. Any and all support is always appreciated. And with that being said, let us get on to Eco. My name is Dave Jackson, and you're listening to Tales from the Backlog. This is a video games review podcast where each week I'm joined by a guest to bring a game out of the backlog, play it, and talk about our experiences. My guest today is a friend of the show, host of the Still Loading podcast and hand-holding enthusiast, Josh Koval. Welcome back to the show, Josh. I do love holding some hands, and my only regret about being on this week's episode is that I'm not in the same space as you to hold right. your hand like Eco holds <laughs> your does. We could have Thanks done this the maximum uh, with maximum authenticity, but unfortunately, no. <laughs> well, actually, you know what? People don't know that. Uh, listeners, uh, unbeknownst to all of you, we are holding hands right now, just digitally. Shit. You know, it's we, fine. we could have just we could have just uh, could have just said that. You're right. We have nobody, we have a nobody can see this. <laughs> We have a separate camera on each of our hands so we can hold our hand cam. That sounds like some, uh, <laughs> some weird J-pop fan meeting bullshit. But anyway, um, <laughs> today we're going to talk about eco as, uh, as evidenced by all the hand-holding talk. But before we talk about eco, I will always give the guests a little time at the beginning of the episode to talk about the things that they make. And Josh, uh, like I said, is the host of Still Loading. Uh, which is a really good gaming history and just kind of general gaming show. Uh, so Josh, I want to give you another chance, just like you did on the other episode we did. Uh, explain Still Loading to everybody. Yeah, uh, thanks, man. So Still Loading is a video game podcast that I kind of describe as a gaming grab bag podcast. I kind of cover a little bit of everything on the show. I cover things. Uh, I do retrospectives, much like how Dave does his show, but uh, not nearly as in depth in terms of uh, like, especially in like, man, I'm amazed at how much you're able to like like great content you're able out of you're able to put out for each of your episodes but 
yeah, I do retrospectives. I also do uh, interviews with people from the industry. I also have more bizarre ideas like Still Loading Storytime, which was an episode from a few years ago where me and some friends did dramatic readings of old video game manuals. And right. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I still get a kick out of that. I want to redo it at some point. Um, and then other ideas like uh, the Final Fantasy Fantasy Draft, which yeah. is what happens when you get mixed Final Fantasy and Fantasy Sports. Uh, I, I, those are, those are usually my go-tos, but uh, I guess in terms of recent episodes, just to shout out, um, I did an episode on a game called the dark age of Camelot with a YouTuber and tech journalist, Matt Smith. And that was a fun experience because it was about an era of gaming history of specifically MMORPGs that never gets talked about. Like the dark age of Camelot was like a stepping stone RPG. And so that was a really fun episode. Let's do um, mm-hmm. to learn about the history of that game and just kind of that whole era of gaming, which like one of the craziest things that I didn't know back then, like a lot of MMOs were tied to which internet service provider you had. Oh. So like if you had AOL, you could only play, you know, like it's not, this isn't, this isn't true, but like you, just as a quick example of what it was like, if you had AOL as your internet service provider back when that actually was a ISP, um, you could only play RuneScape on there. That's not actually true. You could play RuneScape anywhere, but you get right. the idea. We get the so. idea, yeah. But yeah. So yeah, I mean, that's a long-winded explanation, but still loading. I'd cover a little bit of everything. That's why I call it a gaming grab bag podcast with a focus on gaming history. Right, yeah. And um, some other stuff I want to shout out. In uh, the winter, you did a full month of Final Fantasy episodes, the PS1 Final Fantasy games. And I was lucky enough to be on the Final Fantasy IX episode with you and Game Dave. And uh, then you did a whole month of Mario episodes, which is a lot of fun to check out. Uh, So there's a lot. I mean, most of your episodes are focused on like a single topic or a single game that you want to talk about. Your guests are usually really good. Um, So it's a really quality show. I recommend it to everybody, just like I did last summer when we talked about Chrono Trigger together. So... um, We'll talk more still loading before the spoiler break. Today, we're going to talk about Eco, uh, which is an action adventure game developed by Japan Studio and Team Eco, published by Sony for the PS2 in 2001. And before we go any further, I want to say this game was voted onto Tales from the Backlog by the lovely patrons of the show. Um, Every month, I have a poll for games to be featured on the show. And Eco came in second place like twice and then finally won a poll uh, to get on the show. I was just looking for an excuse to play it. So thank you, patrons <laughs> of the tube. I appreciate all of you. Uh, if people want to join up and have those voting rights, that's patreon.com slash real Dave Jackson. Every patron has that uh, right to vote on episodes. So the spoiler policy for Eco, this is the regular spoiler policy for the show, just like every episode. We're not going to spoil what happens in the story for quite a while. Uh, we're going to talk about the gameplay. We're going to talk a little bit about the story and kind of the flavor, some of the characters, the storytelling methods in Eco. But we're not going to tell you what happens until after the spoiler wall, which uh, if you have not played Eco and you don't want to be spoiled, check down in the show notes. You'll find a timestamp for when you can tap out. So... Uh, elevator pitch. If someone's listening, you don't know what eco is, or maybe you just heard the name and you're not sure, you know, what to expect. Um, I say this is a very influential game Mm -hmm. whose subtle inspirations are still felt in so many of the popular series today. Josh, how about you? 
For my elevator pitch, I, I wrote one thing down on our show notes and I kind of changed it up a little bit now. I have kind of thought about it as more of a, a, a game that at the time was a gamble in environmental storytelling that paid off in spades and has shown fruit the fruits of its labor years on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a that's a good pitch. Um, this game took me about six hours to play. I played emulated on PC because I don't have a PS2. Um, but yeah, six hours, it's not a super long game, even when playing with, um, even if you're playing without save states and stuff like I mm. had, uh, Josh, how did you play it and how long did it take you? I played the HD remake on my PS3 and okay. I actually, I think I clocked in a little bit under five out, like about five hours. Now, the okay. only reason I beat it in five hours is because I had, um, this is actually kind of rectifying a, a, a gaming sin of mine this episode. I did <laughs> an episode on Eco back in, I want to say 2000 for my summer of PS2 series. That was PS2, as old as it makes a sound, turned 20 in 2020. Mm-hmm. Um, so I did a whole summer of PS2 where every week was a different PlayStation 2 episode and I wrapped it up with Eco and Shadow of the Colossus. So Right. And when I did my eco episode, I didn't have time to beat it for the, for the, for the show. I, I played a little bit of it, got a little far, but I never really got far enough into it to beat it. So for your show, Dave, I actually finished the game. I, I beat it all the way through a hundred percent, which is why I say I'm correcting my own sin of my own show. Now I can finally <laughs> say I've beaten eco and, uh, so the first little bit, like a lot of the puzzles in the first half of the game, I was able to breeze through because I remembered the right, solutions right. from when I was playing it uh, beforehand. So I would say I actually got through like half of the game in like an hour and a half because <laughs> I knew all the solutions already from that point. It was the second right. half that I did that I had to take my time with. And I there's only one segment and we'll get to it when we get to the gameplay that I had to, you know, sometimes you ever like look up uh, a strategy guide because you can't figure something out. And then after you look it up, you're like, oh, sh- oh shoot, I sh- I could have done this. I could have figured this out if I yeah, wouldn't, all the wasn't time. just so impatient. <laughs> that happened once. And then the second time I looked something up, I was like, well, this is bullshit. I sh- would not, based off everything the game has taught me so far, I should not have been able to figure this out. And mm-hmm. I call bullshit on that. So okay. other than, other than that, uh, I, I didn't have to look up too much. So the latter half of the game, I was able to breach through, which is how I got to my five hour playtime. Okay. So getting into some like personal histories with eco, um, you said you wanted to play it for your summer of PS2 on still loading, but, mm-hmm. Was that the first time you ever wanted to play Eco? Did you want to play it back in the day? Um, did you play it at all back in the day? Uh, what what made you want to play it at all? So I wanted to play Eco. Actually, it's the first when I did my summer PS2. It's the first time I played it. However, I had been wanting to play it for quite some time. So back in two thousand and one, two thousand and two. So this game came out in two thousand and one. And I was a big PS2 gamer in two th- in in that era. I had a PS got PS2 for my for Christmas for my family, and my brothers and I played a shitload of PlayStation 2 games. And I remember the big advertising push that Sony had back then was Eco and Jack and Daxter: The Precursor Legacy. Mm-hmm. And they both they advertised them both at the same time, and I remember Eco being like really interesting looking. I didn't now the game the way they advertise it is nothing like the way it plays, 
but it, I just remember seeing, you know, a boy with horns exploring this castle and I was like 12. I'm like, what does that mean? Like, what is uh-huh. it? Why, is, why does he have horns? Yeah. And, uh, it just kind of captured my imagination, but I never really got around to playing it. And then, uh, you know, fast forward years later, I discovered Shadow of the Colossus, which is kind of like this spiritual successor to this game. Uh, in some ways, you know, obviously the lead, the lead designer and director, Fumito Ueda, who made this game, did Shadow of the Colossus. Yeah. And there's some cool tie-ins, which if, if you're cool with it in the spoiler section, we could at least talk about, uh, a, a little bit, uh, in case, uh, I don't know if you're worried about spoiling, uh, did you cover Shadow of the Colossus on your show? I already? did, yeah, yeah, last year. All right, then, yeah, we're fine. We'll cover. <laughs> there, yeah, it, we'll, it's we'll, very mild spoilers for Shadow, mm-hmm. but uh, it. Um, so yeah, I played it then, and I, or no, sorry, I didn't play it then, but I was always interested in it. And the last thing I'll say is like kind of my experience was just raging about how much of a short. The, how much of the short end of the stick that we got from the U.S. cover art? Have you seen the differences between yeah, the Japanese cover art? Striking, yeah, it's awful. <laughs> it is it, like it is criminal what they decide to do for the North American cover art versus when you look at like the European and Japanese versions. There's this mm. beautiful like art design and like it, it heavily inspired by an Italian paper named Giorgio de Chirico, which I don't even know if I said his name correctly. So I apologize if I didn't, but it's, it's a really awesome cover. And then we got this generic looking like mid two thousands action movie poster uh, but with a boy with horns and a stick on the front of it. It's just yeah. really depressing. Mm-hmm. That cover art is a disaster. I agree. It's um, <laughs> like, I, I'm not, I'm not usually someone who's like bothered by cover art, but those two side by side, I'm like, yeah, what are you thinking? The Japanese cover <laughs> art is be- it's beautiful. And the one that we got is like, I don't know why, whose idea was that? It, probably another one of those, like the Americans can't handle uh, this, this one, you know? Um, but, uh, I grew up without a PS2, so I had never heard of eco until fairly recently. Um, just mm-hmm. kind of like, if you start paying attention to games, you start hearing the names of games and this one kind of came up every now and then. Uh, but like when I was growing up, even my friends who had PS2s never talked about this. It was always shadow of the Colossus. Yeah. That's the one that people talk about. Mm-hmm. So I played shadow of the Colossus for the first time in 2019 something like that i played the ps4 remake for the first time and as soon as i finished that game i was like oh this company they made two other games i have to play them sometime because i I love shadow of the colossus it's one of my favorite games so it was either like play eco first or play the last guardian first and when i'm tasked with those i usually want to go back in time first and then go forward in time instead of the opposite so Mm. Eco, that's the first one up. And you and I actually were originally, like last year we did the Chrono Trigger episode together. We were originally going to do Eco together. And then I got busy playing Chrono Trigger for my uh, Pixel Project radio guest spot. And I was like, hey, I do you want to do Chrono Trigger instead? Like, And so that worked out well. That episode was awesome. But here we are talking about Eco. Mm-hmm. And I was a little bit worried going back to this because I am not the friendliest, uh, most amenable to like really old games with weird control schemes and old oh. style checkpointing and saving systems and all that. Mm-hmm. It's mostly the checkpointing and saving systems and stuff. Um, and this game does feel old 
It is yes. clunky as I expected, but uh, number one, it's not difficult. That's like the main thing. It's not a hard game. Uh, so you're not dying and being checkpointed 15, 20 minutes back over and over again. Um, and, and I came to really respect as I played how I feel like this game has some real indie game energy to it. Like mm-hmm. before indie games were really a thing, this is what I love about indie games today. It seems like someone had a singular vision and um, a mechanics and art style and music that all feeds into this one vision that they had for this game. And I can see that when I play this, even if it's a little bit frustrating. And even if I think the combat is absolutely terrible, which we'll talk about, (laughs) I still like, I, I enjoyed this. I enjoyed seeing the history of it and I enjoyed seeing the, the DNA that is a part of later stuff like shadow of the Colossus and, um, Miyazaki who made the FromSoft, who made the, uh, the dark souls series mm-hmm. cites this game as like a direct primary influence on the way he makes his worlds. And it's easy to see after playing this. So I can't say this game was a lot of fun, but I did enjoy the experience of, uh, playing it. So how about you little opening thoughts at the beginning? So when I, I enjoyed my playthrough this time around a lot more than I was expecting to because when mm-hmm. I played it for my summer of PS2, it was a slog for me to even try. And I'm not blaming the game for that. I, I think – so the summer of PS2, and this is a very brief um, history of my own show, was right when – the first time I ever went weekly with my own podcast. Up until that point for like five or six years, I had been bi-weekly and mm-hmm. – Maybe less than that. I don't remember. It's, I'm coming up on nine years on the show now, which is just nuts to think about. So, yeah. Um, but back in 2020 was when I first started going weekly for the show. I was not used to that grind of, and now I, I, I even technically now I'm still not used to that grind. I don't know how you do it for your own show, man. Cause I, I space <laughs> mine out with like interviews with people that I find. And I also have that captain N series. So like I find ways where I'm not having to sit down and play uh, a, like a 20, 30 hour, or even a five or six hour game. Like, uh, but back then I just, I really did not have the drive to do it for the show. Uh, so it made it a lot harder. Like, and I, I didn't mind not finishing the game because I, that's why I would bring guests on who had finished the game and could apply, uh, like give their, uh, full fan, uh, fanalist analysis of mm-hmm. the game, you know? So, but now I'm much more meticulous with how I do podcasts. So this, so this time playing it through, I was really pleasantly surprised by how much more I enjoyed it, how much more I enjoyed the atmosphere, how much more I enjoyed even the the puzzle solving because once like it's interesting like I didn't really think of the puzzles in this game as, as anything much and they really aren't like anything crazy uh but I was pleasantly surprised by how once you start getting used to the puzzle mechanics that you start being able to almost like it makes it easier farther on. It's almost like once you learn how to speak one language, then all of a sudden it's easier to learn other languages. It's kind of like that. Mm-hmm. Once you understood the language of the puzzles in this game, then it made figuring out the rest of the puzzles that much easier because you understood the logic the game designers were employing for it. Yeah. So I, I enjoyed my playthrough a lot more this time around. And I'm with you. The combat is rough and we'll get into why it's rough and whatnot, but it's it, it really – it was a lot more enjoyable this time. Um, and some things I wanted to, I uh, wanted to shout out. I did a little, I did do a little bit of research on the development of this. 
and you're talking about like some of the origins for this. This game was originally conceived as like a three minute short film made by Fumito Ueda. Like it was all CG and like mm-hmm. kind of a lot of the core ideas, not game design concept concepts, but like kind of the world building almost as like it's uh like um, you know, Oh my gosh, why am I blanking on it? Uh like a the, proof of concept or something. Proof of concept and also the like the the uh artwork that you see in like art books. Why am I blanking on mm-hmm. the the term that they use for it? You know what I'm talking like about. Concept right? like, art. Con- yeah. Thank you. I could not think of <laughs> even though I said the <laughs> word concept earlier. Yes, the concept art. It's kind of like that, but as a three minute short film. And at the time, at least in the interview that I was reading, at the time, one of the big things was AI in video games, like adding computer a- like AI to make decisions and whatnot. But a lot of it was you giving orders to the AI and them executing them in some way, shape, or form. In this instance, they wanted to create something where the the focus on communication was more difficult. And they definitely did a you know, they definitely did that in this game. It, they make it actually a mechanic that you can't communicate with Yorda, and that almost becomes that's why the hand-holding mechanic that we were joking around about is so important in the game because it, if you don't have dialogue to build a relationship with, how can you show affection for each other? And th- that hand-holding mechanic allows you to create a relationship with this AI, this NPC, and it, without having to have these really emotional moments, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So uh, we're going to take a little music break. There's not a whole lot of music in the game, but we're going to listen to some. And then when we come back, we're going to continue on that story setup and kind of how the storytelling goes in Eco. So in Eco, you play as Eco. Eco is a young boy who has two horns growing out of his head. Um, in the world that Eco lives in, the horns are a sign of a curse. Um, the people are superstitious at the very least. Maybe the curse is real. We're not really sure. But uh, parents, when they have kids, they pray that their children will not grow horns and show signs of the curse. At the beginning of the game, some guards arrive in the village and they take Eko away to this isolated fortress. Uh, they place him in a stone sarcophagus and they <laughs> seal it up and then they leave. They leave what him to die. What a hardcore way there. to start a game. Yeah, I was going to say it's a super metal way to start the game. It's like this is like two minutes in the opening cutscene. They seal him up and they're like, all right. <laughs> We're going to let a child starve to death. Welcome exactly. to how, the PlayStation How old do you two? think Eko is? He's like 10 or less, right? Yeah, I would I would say maybe 12, but at the oldest, but I don't even, I think 10 or less probably. 10 and maybe he, in between yeah. like 9 and 11, something like that. Yeah, he, he's a kid and they just put him in here and they, they tie him up in like these like wooden stocks inside this sarcophagus and they just leave. <laughs> A stone sarcophagus and when you he you know like there's like this weird this is because this is all in the opening cutscene there's this weird like earthquake that shakes it and knocks it loose which is how yeah y- you eventually break out and escape but when you look around the room 
you see a lot of other of these same circular stone sarcophaguses. Sarco- mm-hmm. Sarcophagi? I don't know. Yeah, sarcophagi. Yeah. <laughs> it, the room is full of them. And so uh, this is not the first time this has happened. And I mean, all the guards that bring you in, they're very ho-hum about it. Um, you see a little bit of the magic in the world too. They use a, a sword to open up this uh, kind of magical gateway or doorway to mm-hmm. get you inside of the fortress. Um it's just a really cool way to start the game. And it, it leaves you with so many questions about what's going on in this world. Why, why is this culture this way? Is this curse real? The game doesn't answer most of those questions, but it is a really cool way to do tons of world building in like a one and a half minute cutscene. I feel like an underappreciated aspect of world building is how much information that developers and storytellers don't give the audience mm-hmm. and allows the audience's imagination to fill in the blanks for them because now you're 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 left wondering like okay what's like you're like now even now I'm picturing what the village might look like based off of the visuals that I see for the for the men bringing eco to the prison what eco looks like in the begin in the first place the architecture of the prison itself like what mu- what village must they come from and Mm -hmm. how does it look what does it look like and what's the life what's the world like that he comes from where this is just something that's normal and all of that is like interesting world building like you said without them having to even say anything about it it's just kind of this it's you're creating the world in your head without them having to do a thing yeah so the whole game basically takes place inside of this fortress so all of these ideas that you might have about the outside world and kind of half of your ideas about what happens in the fortress like you said that is all going to be in your head it's not told to you and we're going to put a pin in that because that's one of the main ways that this story is told but uh we'll finish the setup real fast so the sarcophagus falls down um, off of this ledge and breaks open so eco can escape Um, You climb up this staircase and you find this young woman inside of a cage. Uh, Her name is Yorda and yada, yada, yada. You free Yorda from the cage and the escape is on. So what you're doing in the game is you're trying to get out of this fortress with Yorda. Uh, So that's what's going on in the story. And that's where I'm going to stop with what happens in the story. But Going back to what you said earlier, uh, Fumito Ueda, the creator of the game, stated that this minimalist uh, subtractive design was like the main thing uh, that they designed this uh, it, with that in mind. Um, and that goes to the storytelling, like not a lot is directly told to you. And it also goes with um, the visuals as well. We'll talk about those Uh, in a second, but it's really like not a game where there's going to be a bunch of cutscenes where people talk to each other. There's a couple, there's like three in the whole game, maybe. Yeah. A lot of it is stuff that you're inferring from tones of voice, uh, because they speak different languages. They speak a different language from us and they speak different languages from each other. So there's like multiple language barriers Mm -hmm. going on animations also will give you some characterization and some like, Oh, that's how they feel right now. Cause they, even if they say something, you can't understand it. So it's all very, very sparsely told in, uh, if you, if you play through the game once and you go to new game plus, they will actually have subtitles for some of the languages that are oh, cool. currently like, it, it's like a runic language is that is the, 
because they'll speak in something and it's written in subtitles in a language you can't read even. So right. you're you're left to infer a lot of it. So if you play New Game Plus, they do have apparently from my understanding you can read a translation of it. I actually did read a little bit of a translation from from a there's a website called Glitterberry which I don't it doesn't really seem active anymore, but that was a trans Glitterberry is a translator who uh, like you know, translates video game de- developer interviews and stuff like that, and they also translated the transcript of Yorda's conversations in this game, which was really interesting to read. Okay. Um, I, I there's not much to it, and even if there was, I would save it till the spoiler wall, of course. Um, but, sure. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So, it, it, but it's kind of cool that that's even an option, you know. Hmm. And um, because. Like I said, there's multiple language barriers that really sets up a uh, number one, a very kind of foreign feeling to the whole setting. Like you're an outsider, Eco is an outsider inside this fortress, and it sets up a kind of distance between the two of them. So Eco wants to rescue Yorda. Yorda is going along with Eco, but it's not like uh, The Last of Us where Joel and Ellie have, you know, character development together throughout the story. And it's like mm-hmm. told right to you as the the player. Um, if there is character development and there is, you're going to have to infer that based on what they do and how they react to things. It's, it's really all you're going to get. And I think that it works well enough. Would I like to hear what Yorda is thinking and understand it? Yeah, it would be nice, but you don't get that. So the, I think you you nailed it earlier. A lot of the stuff that's going on in my head is going to be as good as if I could read Yorda's text, you know? Mm -hmm. You're filling in all those gaps that aren't being told to you. And it's really, it it makes it a lot more interesting, especially with the, like we mentioned before, the hand-holding mechanic that adds a little bit of a layer to the communication in in some way, shape, and form. Or Mm -hmm. form, excuse me. Yeah. Um, and there's there's kind of a difference between the characters too. Yorda is portrayed at, portrayed as this very uh frail, she's very thin, um, all white, so like a you know, a, a theme of innocence going on with mm-hmm. Yorda. She can't really fight, uh, she can't climb stuff like Eco can. Eco seems um brave. Uh he kind of the opposite. He's brave, he's um kind of foolhardy. He's kind of clumsy. Um, the animations kind of sell that too. Uh, the way he fights, I think actually think the animations do a great job of selling a lot of these things. Yeah. Uh, Cause we'll talk about the combat later, but just the animations, he doesn't look like a professional sword fighter. He looks no. like a kid swinging a stick. So, um, <laughs> it, it does characterize them enough just with the stuff they do give you, you know, there, I, one of my, to, this ties in actually with my original elevator pitch that I wrote in the show notes where I, I described it as an atmospheric and brooding game whose main characters add a striking contrast contrast to that aesthetic. And what I meant by that, uh, it, was a ver- it was a very word soupy, but what I meant was that like the world around you is very kind of dark and dour and a little sad and just mm-hmm. very ominous. And Eco and Yorda are not. And Yorda literally is not because she's like dresses in white she's a bright spot on the screen literally but Nico yeah. in his personality is also not he's very kind of carefree despite the fact that he was left to starve to death inside of a stone <laughs> yeah. sarcophagus he's very and the fact that he 
very much is willing to like he genuinely cares for Yorda because he just wants he just wants his friend to escape with him, you know? And yeah. there's moments that illustrate this later, which I don't know if they're quite spoiler or not, so I will save it just to be on the safe side. But sure. there there are moments that it shows it in the cutscenes and whatnot. But uh specifically when you first when he first rescues Yorda in the beginning of the game, um, you know, you he tries to find a way because he doesn't want to see her imprisoned either because she is like him and it doesn't seem yeah. fair to him. So he feels kinship with her immediately and wants to rescue her. So yeah, I, I, I like the, the way they're pre- the characters presented because it shows it communicates to the player, both in the way that they interact their relationship, but also in the way that the game presents them. It kind of shows what type of per- character they are. And almost even in the, the weird um, voice acting, I shouldn't say weird, but the voice acting that's used for Eco, he doesn't, you know, he doesn't speak English or, I mean, I don't even think he speaks Japanese in, in the game. I don't believe. No, it's a, it's a totally different language again. That's and and he doesn't, and even with that, he doesn't really talk at all other than that anyway. It's kind of, if you've played Shadow of the Colossus, like Wander doesn't speak full sentences. He just yells for his horse every now and then. So it's kind of the same way with Eco. He, he yells for it like, hey, Yorda, come over here. Like you mm-hmm. have a call to call Yorda to come over. And he'll like exclaim in surprise sometimes. And then I, there's a couple cutscenes where maybe he actually does say something. But again, you can't understand it anyway. So, But like the the tone and the way he speaks like the Wa-wa? or whatever he's saying is very <laughs> almost yeah. optimistic and happy. Yeah. Child it's like, come here, we're, for sure. we're, we're playing. It, it's very playful in that aspect, which yeah. is why I was saying like they're, they are, are such a striking contrast to the world around them, which is so dour and dark and ominous. And they're just this kind of bright spot, which makes it really – it makes it interesting to play through. Yeah. Um, so let's talk a little bit about how this game looks because this is part of the storytelling um, in a, a game like this where you don't have – direct story cutscenes very often. You don't have characters talking to each other and understanding each other very often. You would lean on atmospheric storytelling and the way the the setting is designed and things like that. So again, the creators of the game stated that they wanted this minimalist subtractive design to remove elements from the world that interfere or distract from their core idea. And so there's a couple just key things to point out. There's no HUD in this game at all. There's no health bar. There's no map. There's nothing. It is just the character moving through the environment. Um, There's no tutorial as far as I remember. You just, well, it's a PS2 game, so you would have had a manual. But they also don't put up button prompts that teach you how to pull a lever or something like that. You just press buttons until you figure it out or read the Mm -hmm. manual. The castle, or like the fortress, castle, fortress, I'm going to use both, um, is free of clutter and stuff. This kind of serves the minimalist design by just putting the stuff in there that you need to focus on and not putting other stuff in there. But also, you kind of get the feeling that this place is not inhabited. This is a, in a it feels like an abandoned place or a place that is wrong in some way. And so I think that having this be a largely empty place uh, fits both of those. Of course, the PS2 couldn't handle a bunch Mm -hmm. of clutter everywhere like a PS5 game could, but it still 
I think that's what they would have done anyway, even if they remade Eco today for the PS5. It would, I think it would still be empty in there because they don't want you to focus on uh, a bunch of shit all over the place. I think as with any well-designed game, they use the limitations of their console to their advantage. And since they couldn't render the castle in as much detail as you might have seen in other games, or they, they, or they, they could have, but like you said, they, they purposely detracted because, or took away so that way it would reinforce the aesthetic they were going for. Um, and I think it's really smart that the way they use it, it's kind of similar to like, you know, in the original Silent Hill, one of the reasons the town is covered in fog is because literally the PS1 could not render a full town. So they're like, well, let's just make the whole town covered in fog. And that's how we'll, we'll get around that. Even in uh, Resident Evil, the loading screen was the door opening animation, which became uh, an element of that whole series. (laughs) Became a thing in every fucking video game. Yeah, right. And it's funny, I've <laughs> never played either of those games because I hate horror games. I'm a little scaredy boy. But mm-hmm. <laughs> but it's something, obviously, if you like get into like game history and whatnot, it's that's one of the things that comes up. And I think to tie it back to Eco, they pull that off with this very, very well. And I love the aesthetic of the castle because at if you look at the textures chosen for the walls, they're so boring like if you really think about it they are boring boring textures but mm-hmm. when you look at them all together and how they appear on the screen and how you kind of explore the levels like that it would have been so easy for for you to get lost in that castle because the textures are very repetitive they're the the patterns on them repeat very yeah. very much and it would be very easy to fall into the trap of making it uh like when you do that, it makes it e- easy for the player to get lost in the cast. Like, where am I looking at? Like, everything looks the same, but nothing, but everything looks visually different enough that you don't get lost on the screen or in the geography of the castle. Despite the fact that so many textures are just like squares, it's just squares all up and down, but mm-hmm. it's very smartly des- like uh, planned out and designed so that way it doesn't ever feel visually boring even though the actual implementation of it i feel like could have easily gone that way with such simplistic patterns yeah so like i said like visually boring is the other side of the like this looks old and abandoned in an old ps2 game kind of way and i definitely got more of the this is untouched for a long period of time like this fortress these places we're walking in people are not living there for a long time. Um, Now, since the game is designed this way with this kind of attention to um, like very specifically putting things in there, like this minimalist design where we're not going to put in all of these extra things that aren't important to the player. It is really important that they make those like visible and, um, when you walk into a room, you understand, okay, I can interact with this. There's a door over there that I can open versus a door that I can't open. Mm-hmm. Um, did you have trouble with that kind of stuff? Um, not, uh, it's, it was more finding out which platforms I could and could not jump on. There's cause there was some that stuck out pretty clearly and there's mm-hmm. others that really just weren't that apparent. Uh, so I did run into a couple things of that. I remember my first playthrough or when I first tried it, there is like, there was, uh, 
what is it? There, you had to pull a lever and then push a box over so you could climb up from one ledge to the other. And then you would see there's a big gap. On the other side of the gap, there's another platform, not a platform, but like another portion of the castle, almost like the stone, the the stone in between just like fell away somewhere. And mm-hmm. I knew that's where I had to go, but I could not for the life of me figure out how to get over there. And it was actually on the wall to the right of it, like, well, top of the screen because the camera angles are a little funky in this. Um, and because the ledges literally were the same texture as the rest of the wall. So I just assumed it was all part of the wall. So there are, there were moments like that where the textures were almost too similar and it made it hard to solve the puzzle. Do you know the area that I'm talking about too, by any chance? Not, not off the top of my nah, head. It's, all no. right. it, it's kind of vague because there's boxes and levers all over the damn place in this, in this game. <laughs> yeah. So the castle doesn't have a lot in it, but it is lousy with boxes and levers. <laughs> they just have so many boxes and levers, man. Uh, but yeah, so that, that was the only time that really the textures and like the, the visual aesthetic really kind of screwed the game over. Other than that, I actually really think the, like you said, it's minimalist and I think it worked. It just, sometimes it did work against the puzzles. Yeah, I can see that. The only time I kind of ran into trouble with like not being able to see what I needed to see was when the camera like obscured something from Mm -hmm. view because um, the, the way the camera works, it's a fixed camera and it kind of swings around to frame up each room in a certain way as you're walking around. And since it's not a free camera or um, a very like, sometimes it's not always giving you like the widest view or the best all encompassing view of the room you're in. Sometimes there's like a, a ladder that's behind something and the camera is just hiding it. And Mm -hmm. so it's not until you walk around that corner, then the camera will swing and show you there's a ladder there. And sometimes that did um, get me. But for the most part, I thought the camera framed up things in a nice cinematic and interesting way, Mm -hmm. uh, which stood out to me because the next game they made is Shadow of the Colossus. And that's a game with an extremely cinematic camera that works up, works really well sometimes, sometimes is very frustrating, but um, they this is clearly something that they tried in eco and then worked on in shadow of the Colossus. I'll get to the last guardian sometime and we'll see that. But well, I have um, a copy of the last guardian and I've never played it. So if you need a guest and I, I will gladly take an excuse to actually give it a shot. <laughs> We're all looking for excuses to, uh, to play these <laughs> team eco games. It's so true. <laughs> uh, along the kind of minimalist lines, um, something I noticed here and it's it's very similar to Shadow of the Colossus 2. There's not a whole lot of music in the game. Mm-hmm. Most of the time, there's no music, like the big majority of the time. There is music in the main menu. There's music when you go to save the game. And there's music during combat. And that's pretty much it. The rest of it is quiet. And you're just hearing like the sound of the wind and stuff like that. But, you know, footsteps and the sound of you interacting with stuff and calling Yorda over to you. And, um, this is something that I don't mind in games. I don't need music and the, the lack of music when you're going through the levels really reinforced how lonely and empty this place is. Mm -hmm. Yeah. uh, Lifeless this castle is. And it's something that, um, I think that, uh, Miyazaki took for the souls games famously, no music during most of 
those games except for boss fights now correct me if i'm wrong because i haven't played a lot of the souls games like i've never i've I've touched on dark souls i've you've seen me rage quit on that on twitch a handful of times (laughs) uh same with like blood well i haven't streamed bloodborne but um what was cool about the level design of this and this i i sorry just you talking about the soulsborne games reminded me of this they from my understanding the Soulsborne games are very like the level design is very like it it loops back around a lot like you'll you know it's very interconnected and they they loop back around on each other and it makes it that much more visually interesting i shouldn't say visually but it makes it more interesting in terms of like it, it makes you feel more real when like you're walking up one you know one side of the tower and then you go through a couple doors and you're back to where you started you're like oh i see how this is all interconnected they do yeah. that a lot in this game yeah and it it really does feel so empty in it cuz there's other than the the shadows that you do fight which will talk about the enemies um yeah. but it there's nothing really in it and i actually i i'm with you where i think that because it's so intentionally designed for that, like it, it just it adds to the atmosphere so much more. It really, it, it we mentioned at the beginning how like when game designers or storytellers leave out information and that itself becomes storytelling because or world building because you're filling in the gaps. I found myself while playing through this since it was so empty. I'm like, why was this castle even built? What was it here for? Like, there's a prison, but that's only one portion of it. Like, why is there all of these extra things if this is only housed, like, built to house, like, horned children that you're starving to death? Like, (laughs) yeah. Sorry, I keep repeating that. It just, it's so wild to me that that is just the town tradition. Yeah, that's the story. Yeah, that's the tradition. Yeah, and everyone, (laughs) everyone's real ho-hum about it, right? (laughs) Like, well, we got to do what we got to do. It's almost like the Flintstones. It's a living. It's the curse. Yeah. Um. (laughs) That that emptiness and the lack of music is uh, building atmosphere just as much as having background music would have. Um, it's communicating to me, at least, again, how empty and how like it, it feels like one of those places that time passed by mm-hmm. centuries ago. And uh, it, the lack of music, the lack of stuff in there, it all it all sells this kind of lonely and empty and oppressive atmosphere of the castle very much so i think because with the you can look around sort of with the camera with it as well where like you'll be like i found myself a lot of times i'd be like on a big bridge or something like that or one of the bridges that leads to like either the eastern or western sides of the castle and Mm -hmm. you would try to pan out around and the camera i didn't mind it so much because it did a good job at tracking eco but it was a little frustrating at times where you would um like you would especially want in combat where you would try to look like look around the room you were in you were in excuse me and it was just very hard mm-hmm. to see it because it was it was dependent on how stable your thumb is in terms of where you're moving the camera and i don't have a stable <laughs> thumb <laughs> got gamer thumb i got i have i don't know what kind of thumb i have i'm very twitchy in general like i can't ever keep my hands sta- straight or steady uh-huh. that's what i'm looking for uh so it was always very hard for me to like uh explore around the room but you would explore around it and just see like all these different like areas that you might not have been able to see normally just by exploring just by the normal camera movement. So you can see like different like corners and different uh, like 
devices and you start wondering like well what was this device here for like some like sometimes there's like torture devices that you see which is always weird uh, or mm-hmm. like um you get a little bit farther on you see like this windmill with this water wheel going on and that's really fun to kind of explore around in that area uh mm-hmm. it just especially visually that windmill spot is my i think one of my favorite spots in the whole game yeah it's pretty striking because it's a big contrast with what's going on inside the castle aka not much uh, so when you come across that <laughs> It is, it stands out. I'm glad you mentioned the bridges because the other thing I want to talk about the design of the castle is how fucking big it is. Yeah. It's giant. It has an impossible scale. And it's something I pointed out in Shadow of the Colossus too, where at the beginning of Shadow of the Colossus, you ride across the longest bridge you could ever imagine. Um, And this game has that kind of scale too, like a you you were wondering like why is this place built this would house like tens of thousands of people it's so Huge. goddamn big and so when you get those shots where you're outside or when you're walking on a bridge from one tower to another tower or something you see how big this castle is and it's amazing and it really plays into that like it it accentuates that kind of empty atmosphere that I talked about earlier when you know how big this place is. Mm-hmm. And like there's, there's a couple spots when you're looking through, when you're exploring through it where uh, some of the puzzles involve like moving light, these giant light reflector, like satellite type of things. And those yeah. big holes that like you, you're, you need to open for the light to get through are huge. They're gigantic. And I, I, <laughs> it, 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 at the, the sense of scale is impressive. I really think Ueda has something with bridges because it, it appears in both Eco and Shadow of the Colossus, these giant uh, cinematic looking bridges, which I'm not yeah. against. I think there's actually I, – I don't know. Maybe this is just like a weird thing for just to me, but I always found bridges like depending on how they're used in media to be a little whimsical. You know, like they're, it's kind of like where do they take you? Where do they – where do you come from? Where are they taking you to? What's underneath mm-hmm. them? And there's a lot of stuff in like folklore stuff like that, like the troll under the bridge and that kind of thing. Like I, I I don't know. I always find I, – I find that his use of them really striking because they're just so – the way he paint like – paints them into the game with his with his 3D art or with the 3D art of the game is always very visually striking both in Eco and the Shadow of the Colossus. Yeah. And I would assume that the last guardian is also working There's on a, a kind a of scale like this. Yeah. It's got to so be. The guy must the guy loves a giant bridge. And, <laughs> hey, I do too. I can't blame him. Uh the other thing, the last thing about the kind of visuals and presentation that I want to shout out is that this game is kind of famous for being all like hand done animation with 3d models, Mm -hmm. uh, no motion capture or anything like that. I don't know, uh, more about, I don't know any more about animation than what I've already talked about. But what I can say is that I play a lot of video games that have motion capture animation. And when you look at these side by side, uh, even other PS2 games, this does have kind of like a real homemade quality to it. Like eco, moves kind of weird and he he scrambles in a really cool way when he's trying to climb stuff. Uh, I talked about him swinging his sword around earlier or like a, a stick. Um, the way that Yorda moves, the way they hold hands, which was apparently uh, a technological innovation at the time. I believe it. I mean, yeah, you, um, <laughs> sorry, I cut yeah. you off. Go ahead. No, go ahead. I was just going to say, you can see it in the, in the gameplay where like when you, you hit the button to like, Hey, hold my hand, Yorda. Sometimes her arm like 
bends in disproportionate ways where it looks like she just uh. dislocates her shoulder to like <laughs> like here I'm holding your hand now and her arm juts out the her arm juts out the, from back, the back of her and yeah. I re- I was streaming a little bit of eco and I I love the animation of like when you pull Yorda along especially if you're running it almost is very much like get over here. come on come on get, get, get. like it, it sounds yeah, it's it like, she, like she's parent. struggling to keep up yeah. with how fast you're running yeah. it seems like a parent pulling their child along like get over yes. here, come on <laughs> It's it's oh it's borderline a little aggressive, but I understand it's more of like it's not necessarily eco being aggressive. It's just how the animation gets portrayed. It mm-hmm. it it almost is like an excited, a very excited childhood type of thing. You know, excited kid is like running. Come on, I got to show you this thing, and it yeah. very much feels like that. The animation, but it still is kind of goofy to see because she's really getting pulled along. Yeah, and we talked about it earlier, but I just want to reiterate that like. When you're looking for characterization in this game, a lot of it is from the animation. The animation's like lifting pretty heavy weights here for giving the characters their personalities. Mm-hmm. And I think that kind of that homemade quality was uh, integral to making Yorda seem that way, seem as kind of frail and innocent and um, kind of like struggling to keep up uh, the way she does. And then portraying Eco in this childlike and excited but also brave kind of way very much so um and the i to to tie back to what you're saying about the animations i still just can't get over the animation for the the combat swing like it just it is (laughs) he is just like full bore like full on swinging like looking like he's gonna pop a shoulder out at any second because (laughs) there's just so much like he's putting so much of his body into that swing he's also like he's such a small kid too so it's no wonder like that that thing probably weighs like a third of his weight anyway Mm -hmm. the wood that he's swinging around i mean right (laughs) right So, Eco is a third-person platformer with a lot of climbing and a lot of puzzle solving and some combat thrown in here and there. And I don't have a whole lot to say about the platforming. Uh, It's a very early version of this, like, climbing on ledges, uh, jumping from ledge to ledge that you can climb, uh, maybe doing, like, you know, you, you lean back from the ledge you're climbing on and do a wall jump and land on it or grab a chain in the air, stuff like that. It, it was all pretty good. I didn't find that very frustrating. I don't know how you felt about it. There was only two elements, two moments I found very frustrating in the game. And one, there's a moment in the game where you basically turn this lever on and there's like this stone block that juts up into the sky, like juts up and you have to time your jump in order to uh, let it propel you up to a ledge that you can then hang on to. I had an issue with that because I was like, okay, I was trying to time the jump and I couldn't do it. I couldn't figure out the timing. I'm like, all right, I don't understand. Am I not supposed to do this? I'm like, is there another lever somewhere else that I can pull? Excuse me. So that way maybe it'll jump me up. It'll, it'll like increase the height of the stone even higher. And then I can jump on it. I can, I can jump a little bit higher with it. Uh, Mm -hmm. 
but no, you're just supposed to time your jump well enough. And it's not really well broadcast. Like it's broadcast well enough where like I thought of it. I'm like, okay, I wonder if, if I jump at the right time, will it work? But it was so hard to do it, to time it. And there's not really like, I guess the only other option is just to keep trying and hope that you're doing the right thing. But there's like mm-hmm. other places you could explore and it just didn't give you a whole lot. I don't know. I That one, I wasn't that upset about. I was more upset that I had to look it up to make sure I was doing the right thing. So Because I didn't feel like going around wasting my time and just to until I could figure out how to time it. Um, they Thankfully, the walkthrough I found did give me a, advice on how to time it. Um, that was one part that I, was, I wasn't a huge fan of just because it was such a different mechanic from everywhere else. And I don't mind when you add new things because it does change it up and makes it interesting but that specifically i just wasn't the big fan of wasn't as big of a fan of just because i came up with the solution but i didn't know if i was doing it right because it was purely based on timing which isn't really something you've had to worry so much about with your platforming just yet in the game mm-hmm. you know um yeah so that that that's more of a frustration than than I consider. Like I don't think it's an actual flaw. I just am frustrated by that. I would say the moment of the gameplay uh, in terms of the platforming that really irked me. It's later in the game, and there's all uh, throughout the whole game. There's a lot of these bridges that are like ha- that are bent half up, and you have to find a lever to lower them. And yeah. you find they're 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 all over the game, especially in like we were. I was mentioning before how. Uh, the Soulsborne in the Soulsborne games, you know, like the levels, uh, like over, uh, you know, loop back on each other and stuff like that. There's yeah. a section of this castle which does that a lot. It loops back on each other, and there's two bridges, and you have to solve puzzles. And then by going by moving that bridge down, it unlocks a new area of the castle that you were not able to get to beforehand. So at then. At every point in, you know, the five, six hour playthrough of this game for the first like four and a half hours, you need a lever to lower these bridges. However, there's a bridge towards the end of the game where you need to jump on it and hold on to it like a ledge or try to. And that will push the bridge down for you to be able to get Yorda across. And I was really unhappy with that because at the entire game, like, the jumping block, I can argue like, okay, I figured it out and I was just bad at platforming. I can I can write that away that I just screwed up on the platforming. This, the entire game teaches you a mechanic and then at the last the last time you really use it, one of the last times you really use it, they're like, nah, don't do any of that. There's levers here for you to pull, but none of those levers that let lower the bridge like you want them to. You have to platform your way up on top of this thing and then jump on top of it and knock it over something that i genuinely don't believe a kid who weighs probably 40 pounds soaking wet could do (laughs) um but they decide that they want you to do that i was Mm -hmm. that's the only time i was not really a fan of the platforming um the only other mechanic i would say that was like it's not related to the combat which i know we're going to get into more heavily was in a little bit was there's the the bombs that you get and I didn't know you could throw them. <laughs> I oh yeah that but that I I feel like that was probably in the manual or something like that. It was. I remember reading that in the manual. Yeah. They they made they made a big point to say like make sure you're standing perfectly still, otherwise you'll throw the bomb. So yep. I was like, oh okay. No. So there we um, go. So it is indicating the manual. So that one, uh, my criticism is gone because. Once again, we're playing a game from the era where manuals actually meant something. And I feel like that's a, when, especially when you play older games, you forget that you were 
supposed to read the manual a lot of times because it would give, it would tell you how to play the game and said now like games teach you through gameplay versus back then right. it was like all taught through manuals but yeah so yeah. in terms of platforming those are my two biggest things the the jumping block and then that knocking down the bridge the, the like one of the last bridges of the game which i thought was poorly executed yeah not a very high like ratio of really frustrating platforming things there's a couple times where you have to do some timing-based platforming, and it's a little bit janky. I, I felt like it was a little bit like, am I actually going to grab the ledge, even though I feel like I should? Uh, 50-50. And if you fall down, it's a little bit frustrating because it takes a long time to climb back up to where you were. Stuff like that every now and then, but most of the time it was fine. Um, so you're doing a lot of platforming, but... Every now and then, as you're going through kind of doing some puzzles, um, these shades will come out Mm -hmm. and uh, they will try to capture Yorda and they'll try to drag her into these uh, dark portals. And this is kind of the escort part of Eco. And if we say escort mission, especially escort mission in a PS2 game, uh, people might hear that and go, (laughs) oh, fuck, that sounds awful. Flashbacks. What happens is uh, if they're able to grab Yorda, they'll fly, they'll carry her over to the place where the portal is. And then you'll have like this period of time where they're pulling her down through the portal. You can run over and you can grab Yorda and pull her back out. And I I don't know exactly how long it is, maybe like 10 seconds, something like that. I felt like it was long enough. And so I... It's it's like the one thing where it's like, yeah, I don't really like these escort missions because if Yorda gets pulled in, it's game over. Go back to your checkpoint mm-hmm. uh, the last time you saved. Hopefully it was sometime soon. But I really felt like um, these were relatively easy. And we'll talk about how you kind of fight back. But you get time to run over to pull Yorda out. Uh, While you're pulling her out, you're invincible, so you don't have to worry about getting knocked over or anything like that. Mm -hmm. So, like, I on one hand, I don't like escorts where it's game over if if something bad happens. But this game's pretty friendly about it, so it wasn't as big a source of frustration as I thought it would be the first time it popped up, and I was like, "Oh, that's what this is." Oh no, it actually wasn't that bad. (laughs) I'm I'm with you on that. I was expecting it to be a lot worse. And I actually remember the first time I played it back in 2020, I really did not enjoy the combat. I was like, I was so paranoid about Yorda getting captured. And I realized like you have, they're pretty lenient. Like you said, with the time, if she, cause but when she gets picked up by one of the shadows, it literally has to fly her to one of the portals that it comes out of. So if you're fighting far away from it, it takes them longer to get to it. That has perks and benefits. It's, there's perks and pros and cons. That's what I'm trying to say. There's pros and cons to that strategy. Like, do you fight closer to the portals because then it's faster to get them, but then you can just pull her out right away? Or do you fight farther away because a lot of times they won't go to the nearest portal? There's multiple portals that open up. and it's, They'll go to the portal that they spawn from. That's not even always, it. I've noticed. Sometimes it's just the opposite. I don't, I don't, whatever, it almost seems like they go purposely go to the one that's farthest away. So I almost wonder if it's smarter to like go in the middle. I don't, I don't know. I, Cause there would be sometimes there was one that would spawn from a portal. It would capture her and then fly to a different one, at least in my okay, playthrough. Fair enough. Now the, the thing about this is um, you can fight 
the shades and you have to, it's how you get through these sections. Mm-hmm. Uh, most of the time, sometimes if there's an open door, you can just run through the door and you don't <laughs> yeah, have to for, fight them. I forgot about that. And like, I, when I figured that out, I'm like, are you shitting me? I could have just been doing this. If I just pulled Yorder up to the door, it would have just eliminated them the whole way. Yeah. But it's, it's not all, it's not even the majority of these no. encounters. Most of them, you do have to kill all the shades to close up the portals. And when I talked about the combat earlier, this is what I mean. Uh, this is terrible. It's <laughs> awful. Um, you have just a back and forth swing, swing, swing uh, move that you do. The hitboxing seems real weird. The thing that really sucks is like for most of the game, you just have a wooden stick and it takes forever <sighs> to kill one of these so many shades hits. with a wooden stick. And like you knock them down and then it takes time to get back up. If you time your swing right, you can hit them again while they're in mid animation of getting back up. But if you don't, then you yeah. have to wait for them to get back up. It's a pain. And the thing that makes it even worse is like the shades don't really attack you very often, but they will sometimes. And if they hit you, you don't have hit points. You can't die, but they will knock you down and then they'll grab Yorda and fly away. And it takes a long time to get back up. And so the times that I did get game overs, it was because I got knocked down. I got back up. I got knocked down again. (laughs) Meanwhile, someone's flying away with Yorda and you can't dodge. You you can't block. There's nothing you can do other than run around in circles. But like, you're not really incentivized to take as much time as you want because there's usually lots of these shades on screen, at least five most of these encounters. Yep. So if you're running around avoiding damage from two of them, the other three are going to get Yorda. So you have to get these done as soon as you can. And it just, <laughs> just sucks. It's not, it's not fun. It's not rewarding. It's just like when it's over, it's like, okay, that's over. Now I can go back to playing the game. It becomes more tedious than challenging. And that's where the issue I feel like lies where once you understand the the mechanics, it's just, I think if it didn't take so many hits, this would be like, well, the combat's not perfect, but it's not awful. That's kind of like where it would change to, you know? It's like the combat's not great, but at least it doesn't last long versus the way it is actually in the game is that the combat's not perfect and it takes for fucking ever to knock down any enemy and take them out. Yeah. You will knock down an enemy, a single enemy like four times before they finally die and some of the enemies fly and they'll they purposely dodge backwards so you have to time your attacks a little bit with them which is Mm -hmm. more annoying because they will i i don't know if they i don't know if it's a like an ai strategy to do this but it does it can lure you away from yorda which then makes her vulnerable to shadows that are coming to attack her it is very frustrating and it is very slow paced and it really like for as fun as the puzzles are the combat just is it's like i I respect a game that tries to have a juxtaposition between the two to like to change up the speed of the pace of the game you know slow paced puzzles fast paced combat but what this actually does is slow paced puzzles slower paced combat and it just kind of slows the game down even more so you don't really have a good juxtaposition like puzzles should never be the fastest part of a game when you have combat like (laughs) i'm sorry like uh, unless your combat is like tactical like a tactical rpg where 
that's no longer it's like it's slow in terms of like you know menu like choosing the right options on the menu but in actuality you're planning out strategy there's a lot more to it than just this kid who wildly swings a wooden stick around Mm -hmm. um so it just i don't know in this type of game i it you're right it really doesn't work i i didn't hate it as much as you but i i can't really go to bat for it no pun intended i really i can't really argue for in defense of the combat of this game i didn't hate it as much but it really it's it's definitely a flaw yeah the defense would be that Eco is like like we said earlier he's like a 10 year old and all he has to defend himself and yorda is a wooden stick so should he be an expert fighter should he be able to fight these shadows off in a super efficient way probably not but in practice as a video game it's it's some of the worst combat i've ever experienced in a 3d game and that's that's saying something (laughs) uh so these whenever like because the music cue comes in when a portal starts to open and sometimes you don't like it's not introduced with a cutscene. sometimes you'll just be walking through a room and you'll hear the and you're like oh fuck yep all right well here goes a couple minutes of just smash that square button trying to swing that that stick and then you're trying to find the portals where they're coming from so that way if Yorda does get captured you know where to look for like where are the guys flying to and that's where the camera that i mentioned before kind of works against you a little bit because you uh you're trying to search around but like the camera can only turn so far in any given direction it's almost like yeah the camera is stuck on like a tripod and you can swivel the camera around but the tripod's not going to move until you move type of thing. And you can only turn it yeah. so far. So it, it is a little, it becomes a little chaotic, especially in some of the um, puzzle areas where like there's multiple levels, you know, like sometimes you have to climb up a ladder to get to the one portal and the other portal is down yeah. the ladder. So then you're just trying to like, I, I usually would try to fight at the top because if I had to jump down, then at least I could literally jump down. Because otherwise, if you're climbing up, climbing a ladder is slow. Yorda is slow as shit on a ladder, and you're slow as yeah. shit on a ladder. So if she's getting dragged up to the top of somewhere and you have to climb up a ladder to get her, God help you, because it's gonna. you have to really hope that no other enemy is going to knock you off the ladder before you get up, which usually doesn't happen, or knock you off when you get to the top of the ladder, yeah. or just knock you onto the ground in general, because if you do, then you're pretty much done for. Yep, yep. Um, it, it's just like, I, I get, I get that he's a little boy trying to defend, uh, this, this woman with, um, a stick against <laughs> these, sh- these shades. Like I get it. He's probably not going to be super effective with it, but it's just in practice. Um, this is where the game felt the oldest to me mm-hmm. was the combat for sure. 100%. Uh, so other than that, this kind of escort stuff, um, the other half of the escort mission is it plays into the puzzles too, because uh, Yorda doesn't have the same abilities that you do. She can't climb ledges. She can't leap across long gaps on her own. Uh, so a lot of the puzzles are trying to open up doorways or create a new path somewhere. But a lot of it is also you can climb up a, a chain, you know, like hundreds of feet of chain yep. up to a ledge, but Yorda can't. So how do you get Yorda up to this um, ledge? And that's how a lot of these puzzles go. The way the puzzles play is uh, very Legend of Zelda to me, 
a lot of block pushing, throwing bombs to uh, blow up debris, a lot of lighting torches, swinging on chains, uh, trying to drop ladders down, stuff like that. So a lot of the time you'll be able to climb up somewhere and there's like a hole in the roof. And now you need to figure out a way to push something down there that Yorda can climb up on and then you can reach down and pull her through the hole in the roof. Mm -hmm. That's how a lot of the puzzles go. Um, I thought that these were pretty fun most of the time. Uh, sometimes I needed to check a guide because that's just the way I am. I'm If I'm, if I sit in a room for a couple of minutes, I'm like, I don't know what to do. I'm not going to just sit in there and not know what to do anymore. I'm going to check a guide. So uh, I did have to do that from time to time, but I did enjoy the puzzles for the most part. I'm with you on that too. I, I did enjoy the puzzles. I also like that Yorda is essentially the key. Like instead, you know, how in Zelda, yeah, yeah. you get keys to unlock different doors. Well, Yorda is your key to progress through the game. Like you can't right. just like solve a puzzle and leave her behind. Even if like, actually there, that's one thing we didn't bring up. If you leave a, a room, I think it's like either more than two rooms or like you're away from a room for like a minute or two, then she can get captured by the shadows when you're not there. Right. And that, and that sucks. Yeah. And <laughs> I playing through the game, there's only really one moment, I believe, where you have to leave her. Like you absolutely have to leave her to solve a puzzle. Um, but I other than that, it, you really don't run into it too much. So you pretty much do you it it basically ends up being how patient are you as a player? Are you willing to bring Yorda everywhere, which does make movement a lot slower? but then you don't yeah. have to run the risk of the shadows getting her or do you want to leave and try to scope out a room beforehand so you could, you don't have to wait for her and then come back once you figured stuff out which you have to rush through because you have a limited amount of time to do so um i just kind of took her everywhere cuz i i'd rather not deal with that anxiety of wondering if she's going to get captured or not they do give you a sound cue so you're you're aware of it and you know to rush back but even then you have to remember which room you're in hopefully you're not too far away and hopefully you can find which portal they're taking her from i yeah uh, it happened to me one time where i that i died because of that i went too far away without her she got sucked down before i could reach to there and when she does you get turned into stone uh, which yeah. is a pretty like, wow, okay. They do explain a little bit more as to why in the story section, not a lot really, but mm -hmm. um, but uh, yeah, or in the spoiler section, I should say. But uh, yeah, I I like that she's the key for you. You have to, you can't just leave her, not only because even if they didn't have the shadows take her, you need to bring her along because she's the only one that can open the doors with her, with her magic, with her magic power. Um, yeah. Which was kind of cool. It, it created this symbiotic relationship and, but not in like a negative way. It very much felt like they want to be with each other and they, like, cause they, they're friends. Like they're the only people that they've been able to see and they absolutely need each other. Eco can, yeah, Eco can run around and jump and uh, do all his other stuff, and but Yorda has magic abilities such as opening the door. She doesn't, she can't use her magic anywhere else and throughout the game. But I don't know. I found that interesting that she is your key, and like all of these puzzles and gameplay reinforces the narrative that we talked about earlier in the episode of this relationship between the two characters. So I think it's really well designed from that aspect. Yeah, a little pro tip for people if you're thinking about playing. Um, if there is one of those doors that you need Yorda to unlock and shadows are attacking, 
Uh, unlocking the door will kill all the shadows instantly. So try that. That helps. Very much so. Regarding leaving Yorda alone for very long, I think that this is a good way of making you kind of empathize with Eco and the way he feels because I felt extremely nervous leaving Yorda by herself mm-hmm. anywhere. And like you said, there's a couple times when you have to. There's no there's no way to progress unless you leave her alone for a little while. And I felt real uh, nervous about that. I, I something bad is going to happen, and like part of it is like, okay, I don't want to get sent back to the last time I saved, but also I don't want something bad to happen to Yorda. So it is um it is interesting how they make you feel that. Mm-hmm. Um. Let's get into some final thoughts here, uh, recommendations before getting into the spoiler section. So uh, I will kick it to you, Josh. Who would you recommend Eco to in uh, in 2023 here, 22 years after it was released? I actually would recommend this to people who like the Soulsborne games, not because of the difficulty thing. It's the... Soulsborne, obviously, those games, the FromSoft games, they're known for their difficulty, and that's part of the appeal of them. This isn't that, but in terms of storytelling, it's very reminiscent of what Soulsborne games does. Um, I actually prefer this a little bit more because one of the things that I... I don't like... I, I like games that are able to use the game's environment to tell a story, but what always gets me about Soulsborne, and maybe I haven't played enough of Dark Souls, is that I can't figure out what the story is at all from from the gameplay i know you have to what you have to read like items right you read item descriptions and a lot of the backstory is told through that right yeah through the items um it's it's a little bit different from eco because eco just tells you the story of the two characters as much as they're going to tell you whereas like the souls games they don't have story cutscenes like this uh involving your character so see and that's where like i i get frustrated because I don't want to have to, I don't mind games where that you have to work to read the story, but where a game makes you tediously sift through every random item that drops to figure out what the story of the game is really is not my cup of tea. So that I think it's one of the reasons I could never get into those types of storytelling, that type of storytelling games. With that said, what this game does is almost like it's not, there's some overt stuff, like we said, with the um, with the uh, you know, the opening cutscene and everything like that. But the way it ends up telling the story is, you know, like like we said, like how many people have been sacrificed because you see a whole bunch of rows of these coffins. You 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 can just look at the world around you and kind of piece together this world and this world and build this world without having to do a whole lot, but at the same time, not. Like you can't, like you could miss it if you just played through the game. But at the same time, like there's enough contextual things within the world itself to build a really fun, I shouldn't say fun, but at least interesting narrative around it. Um, so mm-hmm. I, I recommend it to Soulsborne people, not because of the difficulty, but because the storytelling, it, like, like you said before, uh, Kojima was heavily inspired, not Kojima, I'm sorry. Uh, Miyazaki was heavily inspired by Kojima was too. Kojima, yeah. okay, there we go. Uh, was heavily <laughs> inspired by the, the atmosphere and storytelling this game. I also think that this is a really early example of like games as high art. Cause you know, that's always been an age old debate now. Like I know Dave, you and I are very much of the opinion, like no video games 
games are art. But oh, I mean, but it was a it was a debate in two thousand one. I think that's that shit was put to rest a long time ago now. But in two thousand one, mm-hmm. yeah, absolutely, people were debating it. And this game was one of those ones where people who like who gamers and people who play video games would hold up and be like, "See, this is something that like." is different from everything else. It's very, <laughs> it's like your Holly, you know, your indie Hollywood flick that wins the best picture award type of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, it, I don't know. It's, it has, it hasn't aged perfectly. Uh, the puzzles are good. The combat is rough, but the world building is really interesting and fun. And I think it's worth checking out just for the fact to see what all was inspired by it all these years later. So I guess, who would I recommend this to? Anyone who has a passing interest in video game history and just people who like Shadow of the Colossus, people who like kind of more atmospheric storytelling in games. That's who I would recommend it to. Yeah, I, I'm on those same lines too. So like just right out the gate, if you're not interested in like the gaming history side of things at all, and you're not interested in seeing where these influences from stuff like, you know, like I said, the Souls games, Kojima, uh, The Last of Us, Uncharted, all of them cited this game as a, a big influence. If you're not interested in going back and seeing this, I don't actually think this game is like super fun to play most of the time. The puzzles are all right. The combat's awful. I talked about that. <laughs> um, the storytelling is sparse but like i think it's done in an interesting way Effective but if you too. need a game that's going to be like you know fun combat um in a game that has quite a bit of combat then this is not going to satisfy that uh, but one of the reasons i wanted to play it was kind of that stop on the history tour so i i would easily recommend it to fans of all those games that took influence from it like i said you want to see where those people took the influence from Shadow of the Colossus is the more famous one, but if you kind of read and do some more research, they name Eco just as often for kind of this uh, minimalist design for this uh, two characters going on this journey together. It was something that um, Neil Druckmann, I think, stated as like a big influence for Joel and Ellie Mm -hmm. in The Last of Us. So you want to see that. Play Eco And like, I know I said the gameplay is not super fun. It's it's also, like I said at the beginning, this is faint praise, but it's easy. So like the combat's bad, I think, but it's easy. So at least like if you're not having fun with the combat, you'll get through it. You'll be able to see where the story goes and stuff like that. So it's a qualified recommendation. I do think for a certain group of people, there's a lot to like here. Um, and if, again, if you're interested in seeing those roots, Come check it out. It's pretty good I, in that way. I would say that almost the thing that this game excels at most is its world building and like its aesthetic, the minimalists, all that other stuff. Yeah, and absolutely. If it yeah. wasn't for that, I don't think this game would work at all because the puzzles aren't anything like phenomenal. There's a lot of, like they're fine. Uh, I don't know how they compare yeah, they're, to they're Zelda puzzles. There's a, yeah. It's, oh, and I would even I don't even know how they compare to what was contemporary back in 2001. But like the combat just isn't. It's not good. It's just flat out not good. But for some yeah. reason, it even the puzzles and the combat reinforces the entire aesthetic and narrative that the game is telling. And as much as mm-hmm. the puzzles and uh, sp- specifically the combat has its flaws, it kind of works as you know, this like all the sum of the whole or whatever that expression is where 
the individually the parts don't necessarily work, but together it actually does. The only thing mm-hmm. I would say that would stand out by itself without every anything else is just the the setting and the aesthetic and the art direction and all its other stuff. Um, yeah. That really does tie it all together. So yeah, I, I think actually I'm kind of changing my recommendation to a bit more of a qualified one, like you said, Dave, because I when you said when you asked who would I recommend this to, I'm like I don't I don't know. Like it, yeah. It, it, <laughs> history, but people who like video game history for sure. Um, I still think the people who like Souls games in terms of narrative would probably at least in, appreciate this. Maybe not in terms of gameplay, but just in terms of narrative. Um, yeah. Well, like people who are big fans of the Souls, this is the reason I wanted to play this. One of the reasons, because I love the Souls series. And when I see that the creator of the Souls series was super influenced by a game, I want to play that mm-hmm. game and see it for myself. And so I, I do think that that's here for sure. And yeah, I think that's just how I'll wrap my my uh, final thoughts on it. Like it's worthwhile just to check it out, but it is very flawed and it's not for everyone because of that. Yeah, for sure. And should go without saying, if you're one of the people who played Shadow of the Colossus and did not play Eco, play Eco because... I think some of the reasons why you liked Shadow of the Colossus are here, and there is a little bit of story tie-in as well. So Very little. Very little. There we go. So a little housekeeping before the spoiler section. Um, Josh, I'm going to put a link down in the show notes so people can easily find still loading, but uh, where do you want people to find you on social media, other places? Uh, yeah, you can find Still Loading Podcast at Still Loading Pod on Facebook, Twitter, as long as it's alive, Instagram. I'm also on Hive, but I'm never really doing anything on Hive. I'm also on Twitch at Still Loading Pod on well, as well, and uh, mm-hmm. YouTube at Still Loading Podcast. And I, I did that because other people have tried to take my podcast name. They've taken my artwork on on YouTube, and I've had to take it back that way. Motherfuckers. But I know, right? So at Still Loading Podcast over on YouTube. But uh, yeah, that's where all you can find me. And of course, you can find the podcast on you know, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, anywhere podcasts are given away for free. And yeah, so Still Loading. Hell yeah. And one more time, I'll say that it's it's a show that um, if you like this show, I pretty much guarantee you're going to like Still Loading. It's quality stuff. So go check it out. Uh, go watch one of Josh's streams on Twitch. It's always a good time whenever I tune in there. Uh, so for Tales from the Backlog, um, I would love to have more people join the Discord server. As always, come in and chat. Uh, we have a growing community full of uh, knowledgeable, supportive, cool people. Uh, we would love to have you there too. If you would like to support monetarily, patreon.com slash real Dave Jackson is the place to go. Like I said, uh, Eco was the winner of a Patreon vote. If you would like to vote for other games to come up on the show, that is a good place to do that. And as always, ratings and reviews, super helpful for podcasts. And I have another show doing top three lists. That show is called A Top Three Podcast. So Josh and I are going to take a break. When we come back, it's spoiler time for Eco. So I wanted to start the spoiler section by just kind of bouncing something off you, okay? Hmm. At the beginning, right when you first get out of the sarcophagus, the first time you see Yorda, she's in this shadow form. 
and the shades come in and they actually grab you and pull you into a portal. And then you wake up, you go up the staircase again, and you see Yorda, and she's the normal uh, human form of Yorda. Yes. What the fuck do you think is happening here? Okay, so I have a little bit of insight to this. Okay. That I think ties it together. So remember how I said uh, Glitterberry in the, in the non-spoiler wall section had translations yes. of what okay. Yorda was saying. There's an unused – I hold on. Uh, is an unused, there's an unused confrontation between Queen and Yorda. Um, and I'm reading this from Glitterberry's website. Uh, unused confrontation between the Queen and Yorda. In it, the Queen attempts to appeal to Yorda's emotions while the latter stands her ground. So, uh, the Queen, as you find out, I guess just to add a little bit of context, and I, I'm sorry I'm jumping ahead a little bit, but just so I can add context to this, the sure. Queen, you find out, is Yorda's mother. Yeah. And, uh, you don't really know what their relationship is. Obviously, uh, you find out at the end why the queen has her daughter imprisoned, but, uh, we'll get to that in a second. But one of the things that Yorda says in this conversation with the queen is, you know, her mom says, you cannot live outside these walls. And she goes, I know that. And she goes, then why aren't you here by my side? And she, and Yorda responds, I'm not coming back. You've got it all wrong, mother. I'm going to live the way I want to, even I have, even if I have to pay it, pay for it with my life. It's far better than surviving on the sacrifices of an innocent people. Mm-hmm. So whatever is going on there with whatever magic they have going on behind the scenes, Yorda very clearly feasts upon the children that are sacred, like the children with horns that are sacrificed. Yeah. Very. And that's, so when you escape and she realizes that she can't like, you're, you're different. Like she can see you. It's, you're not just this faceless person inside a stone coffin, which she wouldn't have seen you prior. I would assume that's when she kind of like runs away. Now, what, what does it have to do with the shadow people like dragging you into their portal? I don't really know. I guess it's like, takes you to a different room. I'm not really quite certain. Um, but yeah, so I'm pretty sure that Yorda eats or like, uh, you know, sur- survives off the sat by eating in her shadow form, the sacrifices that the village sends to them. Yeah. So with the opening cutscenes when Yorda is like in a shadow form or something, I kind of just thought, Either Eco's having a dream about this, or uh, it's also possible that, like, when you get pulled into the portal, that it pulls you into, like, a parallel dimension, which is where the queen lives and stuff like that, mm-hmm. um, which is now why Yorda looks normal, because now you're in their their world, quote unquote, you know. Um, mm. But that's just, like, a theory. I don't know how that would tie with the ending. Um, but anyway, so you mentioned the thing about the kids that are being sacrificed and how those are the shades that you're fighting. Um, and this, I didn't figure this out until well, you the don't, point you where don't they know. tell you. See, basically. I didn't even like, I didn't even think about like the, sh- the kid, the shades being the kids that were sacrificed until like, I, I actually didn't think any of them were until the very end where you're fighting a whole bunch, like one right. shade for each in of the, the room sar- yeah, with in the, the room. sarcophagi. But yeah. even then I, cause you fight so many shades. I didn't think all the other shades that you fought throughout the game were 
deceased children. <laughs> um, I just thought they were just like shadow monsters, but I guess that would make the most sense that they were all the former sacrifices. You know, I noticed something when I was watching some videos today about Eco, and maybe it'd be hard to remember right now, but if you go and look at the animations for how those flying ones fly and how the little ones walk, they're they're kind of they're about your size. There's a couple varieties that are bigger than you and the ones that fly they don't have wings they have arms still and they're kind of flapping kind of awkwardly Mm. and so i I do think those are also kids and maybe the big ones are adults uh that just maybe they weren't sacrificed until they're adults because the families in this village like maybe hold out hope for a long time that they're like kids not going to be the source of the curse and i think the manual actually says something about like Eco was allowed to live his life until something bad happened. And then they sent him off to be quarantined, basically. Which actually kind of makes sense because he has a bandage around his head, which you would you could assume was to hide the horns for for when he was a kid. Mm, yeah, for sure. You know? And then just once the horns were on, I don't know why they just never took it off, but I guess he just got used to it. I don't know. It, it, I, I'm kind of inferring a little bit because it wouldn't make any sense. His horns are pretty fucking big. So unless they all came in at like over the course of like four days or some something like that, <laughs> um, you know, there's it doesn't make a whole lot of sense as to why it would um, like why there would still be a bandage on on his head. Uh, but yeah, I didn't even really think about that. I almost wonder, like, did, did the forms that the, all the shadow creatures uh, are, the forms of the different shadow creatures, are they based off of how the individual was killed? Like, did maybe like the ones that were flying were ones that were like dropped or something like that? I know that sounds, that's pretty morbid, but I wonder if like it ties back to how they, how they were sacrificed or something like that. It could be. I just checked the manual again. Um, so there wasn't an incident, but it was um, on his 12th birthday. The horns were big enough that everyone was like, okay, it's time. So maybe they do get sacrificed at different ages, and that's why some of them look different from each other. Mm. Um, and maybe flying ones are just because they needed a little bit of enemy variety in the game. But That's probably it. I'm probably reading more into it. but I, I do think that... All of the shades are the um, the kids. So it's um, not the first game to do this kind of like realization that mm-hmm. the enemies that you've been killing this whole time are these basically these innocents. Um, and you had no way of knowing. And they are at least maybe they're under the spell of the queen or maybe they're just so afraid or whatever that they just do what the queen asks and what the queen asks right now is that they go capture yorda and bring her back Mm -hmm. so that's why you've been fighting them um so what this made me wonder is what's going on with this deal between the queen and the people outside Mm -hmm. is it just the people outside bring their cursed children uh to get rid of them the queen accepts them so that she can harvest their souls uh to stay alive or whatever the fuck they're doing with them is there something more to it than that i don't i i'm not really quite sure either like um it i because i the way i kind of interpret it is because is is it purely sacrificial for that or 
is it just like almost circumstantial where like this is just where we go to sacrifice people and there just happens to be this queen that lives and they, there. And they like, don't know what's going on. After they yeah. leave them in there, they're just like, who, who knows? Who knows? Which, by the way, if my kind of like half theory about there being like these parallel worlds, one of them is the world inhabited by the queen, then maybe they would just go seal them up and leave them there because they think this place is abandoned. Uh, when in reality it's not. There's there's a couple bits of unused dialogue in the game that I'm reading on Glitterberry's thing that, that kind of talks a little bit about this. Okay. So, you know, the the queen shows up midway like midway through the game is when you first meet the queen, right? And right. it says, It's time for you to come home, Yorda. And then uh there's an unused line where it goes, Yorda, what are you why do you say nothing? Uh, Eco says, who are you? And then the queen starts going, That this is the line I remember, so you're the one who's been leading my little Yorda around, and do you have any idea who she is? Blah, blah, blah. Um, she's my beloved daughter. Uh, then it gets to, you know, she says, someday she will inherit this castle. And then this line's interesting. You and my daughter inhabit different worlds, horned boy, which kind of, I think, lends to the credence of what you said. Like, they, they took Eco, they pulled Eco into the different realm maybe like it where and maybe even they knew that they were going to have to pull eco into this world to you know save them from being under the queen's spell who knows but the next bits of unworld dialogue are you and my daughter inhabit different worlds to give your life in service to nobility such as we such as your lot that is why you were brought to this castle is it not uh, and I think there's a couple now come along now, Yorda. Now remember your place or now remember your place and give up your designs on my daughter. So it's just, there's some, some of it doesn't always explain everything away, but, um, that is a little interesting where, you know, there's a line about being from two different, you inhabit two different worlds and there's a whole lot of unused dialogue between Yorda and the queen, which is why, you know, what I mentioned before about how she's, it's better than sacrificing uh, innocent people type of thing um yeah i i, I almost wonder if the vi- I, it would make more sense if a village knows about it like i'm I, I was trying to sift through some of this dialogue to see if any of it could be told or any of it is there but i genuinely don't know what the queen's purpose is except just to exist and be evil yeah it it seems like because the queen does say later and like for people listening, if you're just listening and kind of follow following along with the story, almost none of this stuff that Josh and I are talking about is actually said in the game. Josh is reading cut dialogue, but all these theories about parallel worlds and all this, it's not in the game. So this is me kind of like trying to figure out what's actually going on, stuff that's untold. Uh, but something that is told is the queen says that Yorda's purpose is to become a vessel for the queen's soul. Yes. Uh, because the queen's body is uh, dying or falling apart, whatever, mm-hmm. reach the end of its time. And that's what Yorda's purpose is. So that kind of does give some um, credibility to a theory about the queen's motivations based being basically like doing whatever it takes to continue existing. Yeah. And that's, I, I think it's just strange that like they are, you know, the, like if that's all her motivations are, why is the town people willingly sacrificing people to her? 
You know, like, does she, does she have something over them? Does she have like, otherwise there's just no reason for it, which it would either make the town just cruel or there's like something else going along those lines. It, it, who knows? There, it's not really discussed in the game, which once again, like I said in the pre-spoiler section, I think really kind of lends to its world building because you're trying to fill in the blanks here and you're like, well, what if it's this? What if it's that? And it makes it really interesting. Like that's why I think there's so many interesting, um, you know, anal- people can analyze this game in so many different ways because of that. You know, something that could be up is if the queen is doing all this to continue to get a supply of these um, horned kids to continue existing, then if there is contact between the village and the queen, or if they exist in the same uh, dimension or whatever, maybe the queen is, this is a a superstition basically about this curse of the Mm -hmm. the horned kids. So maybe the queen is uh, keeping that up basically. Uh, maybe there is no curse. It's just the queen saying there is a curse and Hey, well, I'll take those cursed kids off your hands. Or maybe like she terrorized the town like years ago and now she's really too frail to do anything about it, but they don't know that they just keep sacrificing the kids that somehow yeah. grow horns. And like, why Could do be. kids grow horns in the first place? Like, is there some like type of defect or is it, is it just an evolution or, you know, like what, what causes this? It's very, it's very interesting, which actually yeah. kind of ties in, if you don't mind me talking real briefly about Shadow of the Colossus. The let's um let's do that at the end, so I can okay. give another spoiler warning. Okay, okay, sounds good. Um, yeah, it but with the it really makes you wonder, like, what is this world that Eco comes from, where just people can be born with horns, and how like is it a different species? Like, who? I don't. It's very interesting. Yeah. We'll just say now, if you're listening and you have not played Shadow of the Colossus and you don't want to be spoiled on the ending, skip ahead to 141.52. So at the end of Shadow of the Colossus, um, Wander goes evil, gets dragged down into this magical energy pool and is reborn um, as a, a an infant with horns on his head. Uh, no one else in the game has horns. Uh, so I kind of got the feeling at the end of that game that that was Wander and the spirit of Dorman, who's like the demon in that game, being combined somehow uh, and being reborn. Maybe That's just the theory. But the fact is, he is reborn as a baby with horns at the end of the game. And now we have in Eco the storyline of these villagers, horned children, the sign of the curse, which if there is any part of doorman that's living on through these horns that's that sounds like a curse to me so i think that might so here's my theory yeah every time you defeat a colossus once again we're still in that the spoiler section for that so every time you defeat a colossus a, like you a shadow like gets sucked into you right yeah much like the shadows that you're fighting in eco so do you think that shadow of the colossus is like a prequel to eco in terms of the chronology of whatever world that you're in because this is the start of the curse like this is yeah. the origins of said curse and then who knows how the queen actually fits in she just might be uh, a, a doorman's cousin <laughs> or whatever you know some, just an, maybe an opportunist just, opportunist like or something like that and that's the start of the curse 
Um, and it's been passed down for generation after generation after generation. And that's why in yeah. eco you have this. I don't know. That's just a, that's just an idea. I have no idea, but it is really interesting that there's this very light tangential connection between the two games and only because of the end of Shadow of Colossus. Yeah, I, I think it is pretty clear. And I, I think it might actually even be confirmed that Shadow of the Colossus is a prequel to Eco. Mm, okay. But they they definitely did say it's in the same world, and I, I do think it is a prequel. Okay, cool. So I mean most of the game there's not a lot of plot going on. You you try to escape. Um the queen shuts the gates. You have to go to both sides to line up these fucking <laughs> lights uh, these like satellite dish lights right yeah like these satellite dishes basically to unlock the gates what happens is you uh you open up the gates and you try to escape but the queen appears again and uh the bridge starts to collapse and one thing that i think was cool in this moment is throughout the whole game you've been uh running and jumping across gaps and then Yorda is jumping and she just can't jump far enough and you have to catch her every time every and, uh, bring freaking her back. time every time uh this time though the bridge collapses and you fall and Yorda catches you and tries her best to pull you back up but it it's not enough and Eko falls down Yorda is captured she gets petrified and you go through this not very long, but like substantial section where it's just you by yourself. And it feels, um, feels really lonely. Uh, I don't know if you noticed this, Josh, but the, the part where you're just by yourself, uh, there's no combat at all. Mm-hmm. Nothing attacks you cause they don't care. They got Yorda. And then you kind of work your way back up. Suddenly you're in the cave with the, uh, the water from the beginning cutscene. You go to that same door they opened in that cutscene, and you find yourself back in that room with all the sarcophagi. You have to fight all of the um, shades. The only way to progress is to kill all of them. But again, I don't know if you noticed, you probably did. They're not hostile to you in here. They just kind of fly around and they actually run away from you. Oh, I didn't notice that. I was so paranoid. I was running around like a chicken with its head cut off. I was paranoid. Like, oh my God, they're coming to get me. There's so many. (laughs) No, they're not hostile. They run uh, from you. It's actually almost more annoying than the regular ones because they're running away and you just like, your your combat moveset is so limited that I resorted to this like, because like you said, they'll, they'll dodge uh, the flying ones will fly up above you. So I resorted to like run full speed and swing while running. <laughs> and sometimes jump swinging helps too. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, they're not, they're not hostile to you there. And I think it's because mission accomplished. They don't really care about you anymore. I could see that. I didn't know that they were running away from me. That almost reminds me. Uh, I gotta be careful. I, never mind. I'm not, that was going to be another shadow of the Colossus spoiler, but, um, it, but the fact that they're peaceful ties into Shadow of Colossus as well in some way, sort of. It reminds yeah. me of an element of it. And that's all I'll say. So you go through this thing, you kill a lot of them. There's like dozens of them that you have to kill in this encounter. And you should be making the connection again that these are the sacrificed kids. Yep. Uh, because 
I think after you kill one, its sarcophagus lights up. Like there's some visual indicator. It, do, it does. They all they all start lighting up as you take them out one by one. Yeah. So it, it about as uh, point blank as this game will ever be, just telling you like, yeah, these are connected to the sarcophagi. So uh, you do that, but Yorda's petrified here, and after you kill all of them, Yorda is still petrified. Um, and I forgot to say, you find this badass like lightning sword before. That. <laughs> yeah. And so the the one saving grace here is that the shadows die in one hit when mm-hmm. you can catch up to them. They die in one hit. There is a cool thing that you can get in New Game Plus that if in um, the waterfall, and I didn't know this until after I did research for this episode, you can find like this mace that you can pick up. Like instead of a sword, you can get like a mace. And if you find that in the waterfall area, when you play New Game Plus, you get basically like this light sword slash lightsaber that destroy the basically the one that you get at the end of the game but it's significantly earlier so you can just one shot everything mm. um which is kind of cool the, the, there's a there's not a lot of new game plus stuff in this game other like i mentioned before you can read all the subtitles now for the language for the runic language you couldn't read before but you also have the ability if you got the mace in, on your first playthrough to get a badass like lightning lightsaber sword interesting that'll be more fun than hitting them all with a stick that's for sure oh my god the uh, fact, <laughs> i mean once you you do get a sword midway through the game which we didn't really mention and that does yeah, make it a little bit easier a but it it still it doesn't affect much anyway that's that's from the previous section yeah so um right after this room you go into the queen's chambers and you confront the queen um with your kind of badass sword and uh the queen kind of tells you that, well, she tells you um, about Yorda's destiny to be a vessel for the queen's soul, uh, kind of like a this dark, corrupted soul needs a pure vessel mm-hmm. uh, to inhabit, something like that. And then the only boss fight in the entire game is when you fight the queen. And it's a pretty easy puzzle boss fight. Um, you can either hide behind the statues that are in there because she does this petrifying gaze attack. Mm-hmm. Um your sword will block it too, but after you hit her barrier with the sword, the sword flies away. So then you have to hide behind the statues if you can't run and grab the sword right away. It's a very easy boss fight. Did you know you could move the statues? Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay. Apparently, I was reading, I knew it too, I figured that out, but I was reading some like, like I said, do, literally doing research right before we hit record. And it's like, did you know you can like strategies for the final boss fight? You can move the statues to help defeat the boss. And I'm like, did people not know this? Like, I thought it was pretty obvious. There's handles on the side of it. And you've yeah, pulled stuff with handles before in the game. So I, I think it's pretty straightforward. It's a, Again, it's one of those like minimalist design. They chose to put two big statues with handles in the room. Yeah. Of course you can interact and do something with them, mm-hmm. but it's an easy fight. Uh, you stab the queen through the heart. Uh, as she's dying, she says that Yorda will not survive. And uh, there's an explosion. It knocks you out. It breaks your horns uh, off of your head. So Eco's bleeding all over the place. I believe you broke one horn prior to the fight and you break the other horn after or something like that. You like, yeah, you like fly off and hit the wall. Yeah. uh, And it breaks your horn off or something like that. It's pretty bloody too, which surprised me. I was surprised how much blood came out of, I mean, it, it makes sense, but like considering the game wasn't like rated teen even, that's a lot of blood. It was. Yeah. A shocking amount. Um, in the sarcophagus room, 
there's a bunch of lightning energy that kind of zaps Yorda back to life, but she is back to being this shadow form. So here's my theory, the kind of the other end of my shadow world theory. Mm -hmm. When the queen dies, her world dies as well. So now you're back in the real world with Yorda being in this shadow form Mm. because she's not of your world. Now, I don't, I can't explain what happens a little bit later with that, but that's just, you know, continuing my theory here. But now it's Yorda's turn. She, because Iko's unconscious, she goes in, she picks Iko up and she carries him down to the boat, uh, puts him in the boat and pushes him off um, to safety. And you get this like really awesome uh, moment, first of all, where it's, um, it's Yorda's turn to take care of Eko. He's been taking care of her the whole game. Mm-hmm. Now she takes care of him. She saves his life. It's a really touching moment too. The way it's the way they portray it in like the cinematics, where it's like she's, you know, casting him off in that boat, and like it's it's very sad. It's very melancholic. And uh, we'll we'll get to the the part a little bit later in your notes that you want to talk about. But like I, it it it's very fitting kind of you know it's very fitting how it ends where she literally sacrifices herself to um to let eco live it's a really i think it's a powerful ending considering like the relationship those two built and it even alludes to what she said yorda said in the in the unused dialogue where she's willing to die as long as she doesn't have to be her mom's uh vessel anymore yeah and so it's a sacrifice. You use the word sacrifice, and I agree because as this is playing out, as she's pushing it, pushing the boat out into the water, saving Eco, um, the castle's collapsing, and not only does it collapse, uh, it it sinks into the sea mm-hmm. in the cutscene there. So it was definitely like a a sacrifice. She's she knows that she she's not going to make it out of this. And the whole castle, like you said, the castle is sinking in the sea, but like the visual shot of like the I think it's like the camera is on the the boat or whatever and you just see like the bow of the boat with maybe a bit of eco and then you just see Yorda off in the distance and rocks are just crumbling down or like falling yeah. like falling from huge distances split waves going everywhere. It's a really it's a very powerful and cinematic to the game. And um, I will just say that I wish that it ended there because I think (laughs) that the thing that came after it is it takes a lot of that impact away. Uh, So after the credits, there's another scene where Iko wakes up on the beach. First of all, you know that Iko was unconscious and pushed out into a boat. Mm -hmm. Then the credits roll. You don't know that he survived it. So it's this huge ambiguous ending if that was the ending the actual ending is that after the credits eco wakes up on the beach um it's a really beautiful beach big contrast from the castle and all that stuff he runs down like the game just like always doesn't tell you where to go you just kind of have to like run for a while and then you'll see a body on the beach you run over and it's yorda she's not in the shadow form she doesn't look like the kind of human version from the castle. She looks like a real person now uh, because her human version in the castle was still like this very bright kind of 
I don't want to say like ethereal kind of yeah, presence. Almost angelic. Yeah. She looks like a real person now, um, laying unconscious, but her finger twitches. Um, she wakes up and she asks something to Eco. It's in the other language, so we can't understand it. And then that's the end. I did see in the unused dot not in the in the translation, they did translate that. And okay. apparently it's really not like anything great like so the last thing that yorda says to eco at the boat scene is goodbye in her language right during the beach scene apparently uh apparently like it's supposed to be yes it's just yes like question mark like she wakes up and goes yes which i I don't i don't know it is very it's very (laughs) if that's really the case if that's what was said that's very odd that's a very odd choice to like because if especially if the whole thing it, like why like why is she there uh why are you there without the boat oh no i think you do see the boat on the edge do you see the boat at the beach i don't remember but it, it could you know this is translated from one language to another language to another language now and so i mean just thinking like in korean like i speak korean the way that you would answer if someone calls your name is by saying yes basically mm-hmm. so it could just be a translation and this is also like one of the benefits of having made up languages in games, because if your writing is odd, no one knows. Yeah. So, um, but it, it, it could be a combination of those things. I personally, like, before I tell you the kicker, which is in the notes, you may have already read it. Yeah, I, but I, before I, I, I tell no. the audience the kicker, when I saw this scene, I thought that this really took away from a very powerful ending with Yorda kind of going down with the the fortress. We don't know if Eko's going to be okay. We get the feeling he probably will be, but Yorda, who knows? And then this scene comes out and just kind of took away some of that impact, I think. And I'm a sucker for downer endings um, just in general. So like, I don't hate a happy ending, but I also really like a, a sad ending or a bittersweet ending, you know? So this kind of was like, Felt a little unnecessary, but especially with what I'm about to say later. But how did you feel when playing the game? I'm, I see, I didn't have the same visceral reaction, but after you said that, I'm like, you're right, because it really does take away. And I'm not a sucker for a sad ending like you. I, I do think, though, sad endings are really good and worthwhile when done with intention. Now, I'm not even saying done correctly, I'm saying done with intention. Um, I, I'll tell you off, Mike, there's a movie and I don't want to spoil it because it has nothing to do with the game, but like there's a movie I remember a friend of mine showing and it, it's this whole human drama and everything's like all working out at the very end. And then like, you know, people are starting to reconcile and everything. And in the very end, there's a catastrophic disaster that just kills a bunch of people unnecessarily it has nothing to do with the plot i know that's very vague and i'm going to keep it vague just for the people who haven't seen the movie but it's this catastrophic thing where just as everyone has finally like gone through all the drama made up now kind of being able to move on with their lives uh one of it involving like a father-son relationship the father gets killed by this catastrophic event but you don't actually see it it's just implied and then the movie ends and goes to credits and it's like that was unnecessarily sad you know like that is a that is a sad ending that does not earn its sad ending 
in games like The Last of Us, which I won't spoil here, but The Last of Us in games like this, where there is a sad ending and it's purposely sad, it is an earned sad ending where you it the message there's there's a message being told in kind of like the or not, maybe not even a message, but there is something being shown in the beauty of this relationship that Eco and Yorda have built up throughout the la- throughout their adventure in the game, and as Eco saved her from a life of just essentially servitude to her mother, even though she was going to die, she would rather go out on her own terms and save Eco than stay being trapped uh, her mother essentially a ward for her mother's body or whatever um mm-hmm. or her mother's soul and like this is a very earned sad ending that i do think gets taken a lot of the punch gets taken out by the end cutscene of just exploring on the beach there is uh this is not the thing that you wrote in the notes so i promise i'm not spoiling that i'll i'll let you drop that for the listeners but um <laughs> uh there in the new game plus if you play through it again there is a tiny 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 difference between the two okay and it doesn't fucking change a thing you exploring the beach you can find watermelon on the side and you can pick up the watermelon and bring it over to Yorda when you discover her, and you can both share watermelon. And the thing is, when you watch the scene of it, though, it's just Eco eating watermelon and Yorda bizarrely just watching him eat watermelon. <laughs> I, I don't like. I don't think it does anything to enhance the ending by any stretch. Like the post credit scene, if you're if they're going for this. Um you know, we had this ambiguous ending and then it's a happy ending after the credits, then what's more joyful than watermelon. some watermelon after a hard-earned <laughs> with a, victory? With right? a friend. Watermelon with yeah. a friend on the <laughs> beach. <laughs> some watermelon on the beach with a friend. Yeah. <laughs> um, now, the, 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 the kicker is that I was reading some stuff today and it turns out that Ueda has said that this scene on the beach is a dream that Iko had. Uh, which number one, if it's not in the game, you saying that it's a dream, like I'm, I still feel the same way about what I saw in the game. Yeah. Right. A hundred percent. And number two, if it is a dream, it's like kind of just similar to the ending, I guess. Like maybe, maybe this is a dream that Eco is having as he's like floating out in the boat in the middle of the the sea or something like that, or Maybe he's washed up on the beach and he's hallucinating or something. Not really sure, I, but it it's just feels odd to say that this is a dream. Not that dreams don't mean anything, but like we had such a really concrete and impactful ending again, and now we're just going to put a dream at the end of it, and it's still ambiguous. Still don't know what to think. I just like... I don't really, uh, I don't really like it. As no, much. I, I'm with you 100. percent And I think the only thing I don't think it would have been good, mind you. So I'm not even saying that. Um, I the only thing I think that could have any in any way, shape, or form redeemed it. And by the way, I did just check. You do you wake up outside of the boat that has washed ashore, which makes even less sense. If you if he fell asleep on the boat, why is the boat still intact and he's on the shore? Like, how did he spill out of the boat? Whatever. Um, yeah. I, but if this is supposed to be a dream, 
it needed to be broadcast that it was a dream because otherwise you're making a purposeful story beat not like if you're trying to make the ending ambiguous like oh did they survive did they not you it didn't succeed you know what i mean like i understand an ending where it's like are you it's up to your interpretation if if yorda survived or not but they didn't do that they made it very clear like if this isn't a dream it's very clear that yorda survived if it's a dream there's no indication that it's a dream other than it's very bright but that doesn't mean anything because they're outside of the castle that could just mean they're outside of that dreary area if you yeah. really wanted to show it was a dream and i don't think it would have been a better better ending i think it would have been best just to leave it as yorda sacrificing herself for ego but if you really wanted it to be a dream, maybe show like like a top down shot of like Eco passed out in a boat, and then it fades to white, and then he's then it's the dream sequence, and then when you go talk to Yorda and she wakes up, then it fades back to what is actually happening, and still him on the boat, and you see in the background the rocks tumbling down. So that way, it's kind of like a little bit bittersweet in the sense that he's he's dreaming of an experience with the friend he just made and he's never going to get that because she sacrificed himself herself excuse me for him but i still don't think that would have been as good it would have been an unnecessary scene to add when the point was already made with her sacrificing him or sacrificing herself yeah so if it's a dream it's it just feels a bit unnecessary and i i think you're right if it's not in the the text, quote unquote, if it's not in the game that it's clearly a dream, then I'm playing the game. I see this and I think, oh, okay, this is this is what happens. And then I just read. He says, oh, it, that was a dream. And I'm like, well, how how am I supposed to know that that was a dream in any way? So not to not to belabor the point, but I think that two interpretations of the ending are both not as good as I think it would have been if it just stopped at that before credits ending, 100%. which is a really powerful, um, a really powerful and emotional ending to, to not know what's going on with either character basically. So that is eco and uh, Josh, this has been awesome. The, um, the story for as, as kind of sparsely told and minimalistic as it is. Um, I think we had a lot of meat on the bone to talk about with theorizing and, one of the cool things about these stories is if it connects with you in any way, you can connect those dots in your head and come up with some cool shit. I think that both of us did here. I'm real happy with this conversation. So thanks again for coming on, man. Dude, thank you so much for inviting me back on. I I, I love your show. And every time I see uh, a new episode come out, I'm like, man, I want to do that show again. So I'm really happy that, <laughs> that you invited me back on. Thank you. Yeah, man. You will continue to keep getting the invite. It's always a pleasure. So um, people listening, thank you very much for sticking it out till the end. Uh, we appreciate you. If you want more of me and Josh, you should go check out on still loading. I talked about final fantasy nine. I also talked about spec ops, the line, uh, two episodes that I think we had great conversations on. And then here on tales from the backlog, we talked about chrono trigger last year. That's also a good episode worth checking out. So thank you everybody for listening. One more plug to check out still loading podcast, even if it doesn't involve me. <laughs> thank you for listening. Tune in next week for the next game to come out of the backlog. Mm-hmm.